day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Remember to join me tonight for our next and final virtual WDET Book Club event. Uh, we have been taking a deep dive into the lasting impact of this year's book, Invisible Man, by Ralph Ellison all summer. Tonight, I'm going to speak with Sandra Adele, who is a professor of Africa, African-American studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about how Invisible Man relates to the political and social movements right now in 2020. And if you think about what is going on in the state of Wisconsin, not too far from Madison right now, uh, you know that that will be a really important and interesting conversation. You can register for this Zoom event on August 27th tonight at 8 p.m. It is uh, at wdet.org slash events. A little later in the program, we are going to have our next discussion about the WDET book club about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We're going to talk with Valerie Prince, who is a professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University. She was our guest for the last virtual uh, book club event as well. She and I are going to talk about African-American literature and something she said during our initial conversation that really stuck with me, the idea that there isn't any such thing really as African-American literature in a nation that is so controlled by white supremacy. Uh, It is going to be a really interesting conversation, and we are also going to talk about how that dynamic is present in so many different parts of American society, including policing, including the things that we are seeing people push back against right now in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, where there are nightly protests and where the power of white supremacy, the power of bias against African-Americans is really on display in a way that uh, I'm not sure we have seen a whole lot of before. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation, and you're going to want to join us tonight for the conversation with Sandra Adele. Again, go to WDET.org slash events to register. Up first today, it has been 26 years since Michigan voters approved a new way to fund our schools. One of the goals of Proposal A back in 1994 was to create a more equitable system across the state. It created our unique system of per-pupil funding, which is allocated each year at the state level and sets a baseline for the amount of money that schools get. And it lifted up a lot of the poorest districts in Michigan. They were getting much less than that baseline uh, amount each year before that. But there are inequities that still exist under Prop A. Since 1994, districts with the lowest levels of funding have still not caught up to the wealthiest districts, many of whom were allowed to continue to pad school funding with their own wealthy tax bases. And schools are at the mercy of turbulent economic trends that fluctuated wildly over the last three decades. There are a lot of educators, experts, families, and politicians who now want a rewrite, or at least an update, of Prop A, but Crane's Detroit Business Senior Editor Chad Livengood writes this week that the notion of revisiting Prop A seems elusive as ever. That is where we begin the conversation today, and joining us to talk more about this is Chad Livengood, Senior Editor at Crane's Detroit Business. Chad, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Stephen. So you did some extensive reporting recently about school funding in Michigan, about equity or the lack thereof. And you use Madison Heights School District to demonstrate some of these issues. Talk about Gardenia Avenue in Madison Heights and the dividing line that it represents. Yeah, Ardenia Avenue, you, you would drive down, this is basically 11 and a half mile in Madison Heights, right off of John R. You wouldn't know the difference between the two neighborhoods on both sides of the street, but there's a stark difference when it comes to where you send your children to school. On the north side of the street, it's Lampier uh, School District, where the kids get $10,789 a year for their education. And on the south side of, 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 of Gardenia, it is uh, Madison uh, uh, district public schools, and they get the minimum foundation grant of $8,111. Uh, uh, that's a 33% difference from b- basically living uh, and, and owning a house on the other side of the street in that, in just in the same city. Um, and, and this just, just kind of struck me as really stark. What's, what's the story here? The story is Lampier was one of 43 school districts in Michigan that, uh, got cut into a deal, uh, right around Christmas Eve of 1993 when, uh, lawmakers were, and were, and then Governor John Engler were putting together Proposal A to put on the ballot in, in 1994. And this deal essentially said these districts that had historically higher tax bases because of a certain you know, commercial or industrial taxpayer or, or had just uh, higher value homes or, or just taxed themselves more, um, got to basically be called hold harmless districts where they would not see their, their funding reduced. They basically got their, their high funded district uh, funding frozen in time uh, for a quarter century now. And while the rest of the school districts in Michigan have been kind of slowly creeping up, the gap has narrowed, um, particularly in the last 10 years, uh, after there was significant cuts in, in, the, uh, in the Great Recession uh, to public education. But that gap is still very stark. And that, in, in Madison Heights, kind of uh, the same city, uh, uh, two different school districts, which we can have a totally different conversation about why we need two school districts in one city. Um, but we have a lot of these, and, and this is pretty prevalent across Metro Detroit, uh, uh, you know, in Warren, there in between Warren and Centerline, there's essentially four school districts, mm-hmm. uh, um, and and Warren uh, consolidated and Warren Woods are also hold harmless districts that have a much larger uh, per pupil funding appropriation. And this Madison district in particular is kind of interesting. If you look at a map, it is basically uh, is surrounded by um, hold harmless districts in Royal Oak. Uh, the Warren district uh, to, uh, to the to the uh, to the east and such and 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 it's just and, and talking to the former superintendent of that district they're at a competitive disadvantage every day basically because of this they they just can't pay the teachers as much um, he put it in stark um, uh, terms that you know uh, the a three thousand dollar difference uh, in the uh, per pupil funding um, excuse me twenty six hundred dollars it, it essentially is is fifty thousand dollars more per classroom uh, mm-hmm. than the um, than the Madison than the uh, um, uh, the Madison district uh, can, can afford to to have, and that that uh, that translates into resources. That translates into how how many reading coaches you can have, and and parapros, and 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 what kind of special education programs can you offer? Uh, and these districts. Uh, the other thing about this comparison is 
the Madison district is much poorer. Um, there is a much higher percentage of, of students uh, living in poverty than their, than their peers on the, on the north side of town. And so uh, here you have a, a district that gets less uh, to educate more costly uh, students, and that's just one of the just sort of inequities we have in this system, and you can find this uh, in other instances across Metro Detroit. Mm. So, so let's go back to 1994, which is a, a year that I actually can remember the debate unfolding about school funding and how we were going to change it, how we were going to change property taxes in this state to try to pump more money into schools, but also lower people's property tax burdens. Um, the, the idea was that over time, the gap that was perpetuated by Prop A would narrow, that we would be at, at some point much closer to equity. Why did that not happen? Was it ever a reasonable conceit of, of Proposal A, or did things just not go the way people anticipated? Well, there's there's a couple of events that have happened in history. One is the Great Recession and the housing market crash of 2008-2009 greatly depleted or, or depressed the, the value of homes uh, that uh, that then, re, because of what some of our constitutional restrictions on, on, on how property taxes can grow, uh, they get capped at inflation. So when these houses, housing prices dropped, they, their, their, their taxable value uh, dropped, and they reset in many cases, and that lowered the, pro- the taxable property value. This is a, you know, a profound story of Detroit in particular, uh, but, it, but it's not just limited to Detroit. This, is, this can be found in, all, in most cities across the entire state. Um, and so they didn't, th- that base uh, got dwindled. Um, we, in Proposal A, voters capped uh, education property taxes uh, to, to the state to, at six mills, with the exception of these hold harmless districts that got this sort of exclusive right to continue having uh, additional taxes uh, to, to give more money to, to those particular school districts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, is sales tax is, is, is the predominant way we fund schools now uh, through the school aid fund. And... Sales tax can be cyclical. Uh, in this recession, it's 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 rebounding for for a, a couple of reasons. One is that there's just been a, been a lot of government stimulus, putting money in people's pockets to spend. Uh, but in you know the 2008 recession, that was not the case, and and sales tax plummeted. Um, and so the these revenue streams, um, the, the property taxes has not grown. It's the the the, the, the millage rate is capped. Um, and the sales tax has been uh, at times volatile um, and 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 not as reliable. And same thing as with income tax. There's a portion of income tax that also gets earmarked uh, for for public schools. And and then lastly, there's just no other local options uh, for for tax revenue. A lot of you know this is a larger issue of tax tax in general in Michigan. A lot of states have local options, sales taxes, local option, um, um, uh, property taxes to to um, let the voters decide if they want to support or put more money into the operations of schools. And we should be clear, this is separate from the from capital bond projects for public school buildings. This is just the operations of your school district. Mm. Um, and then the other last thing, Stephen, uh, um, it, it is is the buying power of that money 
has dwindled over time. This is a really important point. Um, the the cost of 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 healthcare and the cost of pensions for school districts has ballooned. Hmm. Um, I mean, a couple of years ago, the legislature had to finally put a cap on um, the cost of pensions at twenty six percent of payroll. Um, and, and because it was just going to keep going up and the legislature started putting in uh, more and more money every year, well over a billion dollars, um, just putting that into the, into the retirement system for, for public education, uh, employees, mostly just to lower that cost for school districts. And there was a big fight, as you might recall, of whether this really counted towards money towards our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately the, the governor Snyder and, and the legislature at the time rationed rationalize that, you know, we're either going to give you a billion dollars, you're going to give it back to the pension system, or we're just going to send the money straight to the pension system and and lower your liability. But those liabilities have piled up, and and, and, that, and again, that, that, that dollar does not go as far as it did in 1994. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Chad Livengood, Senior Editor at Crane's Detroit Business. We're talking about school funding here in the state of Michigan, how unequitable it is still after Proposal A passed in 1994, which narrowed the gap between the haves and the have-nots and promised to narrow it even further over time, we now find ourselves in 2020 with a situation that is as inequitable as ever. We're talking about the prospect for change, whether we might have another conversation about school funding, whether we might address those inequities in some way. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know how well your local school district is supported financially. Do you think the kids in your district are getting the education they deserve? Do you think it's time to overhaul the way that we fund schools here in Michigan? And if so, what would you change? How would you do it so that people's uh, schools were getting more money uh, in some cases than they are right now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work comments into the conversation. Chad, I want to talk about what it would look like to try to take this on again. Uh, You write about uh, what equitable funding would actually look like, and it's not as simple as simply bringing parity between districts. What did the experts say needs to happen to get to a state where we have true equity in education funding? Yeah, well, the, the first part is, is, is this political landmine of, hold, of navigating these hold harmless districts, um, partly because they're some of the most wealthiest enclaves in the state. East Grand Rapids, Bloomfield Hills, Birmingham, mm-hmm. Gross Point, Novi, uh, Farmington, they, they, these are places that uh, the people have a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, political sway, and uh, and um, and their voice is a little much, much, much louder than than uh, than average places, uh, say um, say Alma or or or, uh, um, or or Jackson or certain or, or, or certainly Detroit, um, and so that's the first part is if you try to try to bring you know lower the taking the money away from those districts is just not politically palpable. Um, but then low, um, increasing the base is also just difficult. There's just not enough money. Mm. So you, you have a conversation of, you know, do we, we put more resources into this or do we redistribute the existing wealth, essentially? Um, but uh, the folks at the Education Trust Midwest 
have put together a, a couple of models for um, making cuts differently than just across the board. And this is the way legislature normally operates. If they're going to increase money or decrease money for schools, they just do an across-the-board amount. And so Education Trust took the uh, the largest cut ever, which was in 2011, uh, over two fiscal years. School districts all at once got $470 per kid reduced um, as part of the of the deal to budget the balance the budget that year, and also uh, deliver a very large tax cut to businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing that. Um, uh, they looked at, the, at a way to how to, how to basically make that you know if instead of the uh, a, a per, per per pupil dollar amount, just do a, a percentage amount across the board, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that would amount to five point six percent. They also came up with another way of of, of looking at um, uh, taking into account the cost of, of of educating children. If you have more children, uh, oh, higher percentage of children who are who do not speak English at home, uh, they're known as English language learners, um, they, they, they cost more to educate and, t- and they require more tutoring, uh, more one-on-one instruction. Um, and so you, they, they, weighted, they created a weighted formula um, based on that. Special education obviously requires a lot of, uh, in this varying degrees of special education from, you know, from, uh, from uh, you know, cog- high, high cognitive disabilities to physical disabilities or, or, or learning disabilities that require a lot of um, one-on-one instruction as well. So they, they weighted the, that, those percentages to fig- make calculations and make a way that you um, uh, give a lesser cut to districts with, with these higher proportions of populations that need additional, uh, more intensive instruction, and you give a higher cut to, to wealthier um, uh, districts uh, that, uh, and that may not always even be hold harmless districts because we have, in the, in the 26 years since proposed away, we have a lot of districts that have grown immensely, Chippewa mm-hmm. Valley, Valley uh, South Lyon, areas that still get the minimum foundation grant, but they have a lot more people, uh, a lot more students who are, are from much more better off families. Mm-hmm. So these range of cuts from Education Trust Midwest, their scenario, it basically would cut the highest funded districts, the Bloomfields and the Novi's, by $764. And the lowest funded districts, the poorest with, with also uh, the highest population of, of, of kids with special needs and such, uh, would get $147 uh, per cut. And this is essentially their, 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 their sort of imagined scenario of equity that uh, tries to, tries to uh, uh, t- take the cuts uh, lessen the burden of cuts on on the on the on the students and the districts who have have the uh, the most needs and the fewest resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Larry in St. Clair Shores. Larry, what's on your mind? Well, uh, you know, I, I served on the Lakeshore Board for eight years mm-hmm. uh, back in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, and I learned one thing about uh, funding for education. Uh, it seems like school districts always demand more money. They don't have a real incentive for um, to keep their fiscal house in order because they're always looking for more tax revenue, and they're crying about it every year. Now, as far as the pensions are concerned and the retirement system, does anybody remember why the state took over the retirement system? Hmm. Uh, Jim Blanchard took over the retirement system and said, oh, we're going to take care of all the teacher retirement systems. Now, before that, every school district had its own retirement system fully funded. 
and the state takes over the retirement system, and the next thing you know, well, 40 years down the road here, we've got problems with the retirement system. There's not enough money going into it, and, and they're fine, trying to find ways to cut back on, on pensions and costs. And, you know, before the state took over, it was funded. Mm. You know, so, uh, law, law of unintended consequences is in play here. So, so, Larry, what would you do? What would your solution be? Uh, <laughs> I don't have a solution. I'm only telling you what the problems are, you know. And local control doesn't seem to cut it. Yeah. I, one thing I would love to see is the money follows the kid. Literally, every student gets a, a particular amount of money, and they go to whatever school they want to, you know, within reason, because, you know, you're not going to send a kid 20 miles. Mm. And as far as the special needs and special education children, you've got the ISD uh, levy, uh, millage levy, yeah. and if you need to increase that per county, you just do it mm. and make sure the kids that are in need get the best the best quality education that the money can buy. I mean, yeah. I, I can't I, I can't cotton to the fact that they would be cutting back on anything for the kids that really need the attention because yeah. a lot of those kids, once they've been through school, are very can do very well in society. And, um, well, and, you know, and every members, kid deserves yeah, and every kid deserves the, the the educational support that we're supposed to give them. Larry, I really appreciate uh, the call and the comments. Shed, uh, can you quickly respond to what Larry's saying here? Yeah, there. I don't know the uh, the his the 1980s history, but I do know what happened after school choice in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. In that. We started breaking up our school districts, infusing all these new charter schools and school choice programs that uh, that moved kids around and and created created competition in the marketplace for sure. But what it also did was it started it started changing the equation for the pension funds. Mm-hmm. There were fewer teachers paying in. Um, they started privatizing every service under the sun, from custodials to bus bus drivers, food service. Even even being a soccer coach, getting a fifteen hundred dollars stipend, uh, that that service got um, got privatized, basically to take away so that the district didn't have to pay a portion of that uh, pay pay a pension fund amount on top of that fifteen fifteen hundred dollars. Um, it was and this is what is known as stranded costs in the pension system. So these stranded costs started piling up in the late nineties, early two thousands. And then the pension fund lost 20% in, in the 2008, 2009, uh, financial crisis, like everybody else's 401k. Mm. Um, and so it has slowly recovered. It, you know, the MIPSERS, the, st- the teacher pension funds about, is about 70% funded, which is pretty much about what every other pension fund is, uh, in Michigan these days. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's requiring a lot of more and more money. Um, but that's partly because we we had a lot of policy changes that took people out of the out of the system from being payers, and we had less and less uh, buying power, as I said earlier, uh, for for our school funding, and and so you had just less and less money going towards the towards the uh, retirement. And we're talking about the retirement of some four hundred thousand school employees, active and and um, and and um, and retired. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chad Livengood, senior editor at Crane's Detroit Business. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for coming by. Thanks for having me, Stephen. We're going to take a break. and When we come back, I'm going to talk with Wayne State University's Valerie Prince about this question. Does black literature really exist in America? Or does the publishing industry frame all stories through a white lens? Bigger question. 
Does blackness exist in a nation that filters almost everything through a white lens? Think of the things that we're seeing right now in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We're going to talk about that all next on Detroit Today. Stay with us.